Welcome to another episode of Andy Here's the 80s. I am your host, Andy, joined as always with my co-host, Aaron Keck. How's it going? Good. Today we are going to be talking about hardcore. We are going to... Uh, this is the most low-key beginning uh, for... <laughs> We're gonna be Hello, talking today about we're going to be talking hardcore about hardcore punk. punk. <laughs> Fuck shit. <laughs> this is NPR. <laughs> but first, the news. <laughs> uh, but yes, this is the show where we go through the music of the 1980s and find what is worth adding to my CD collection. And we've stumbled upon five hardcore punk albums this week uh, that are kind of continuing our trend of the last few episodes of... Um, you know, things that have spun off from that initial punk explosion of the late mm. 70s. And these are a bunch more bands who, after being, you know, inspired by the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and et cetera, decided to take that formula and basically just turn it to 11. Amp right? it up, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just go even harder, even faster. And I like this because the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the the punk movement and the extent to which it exploded into all of these different genres that if you listen to like Talking Heads, for mm-hmm. instance, does not sound like punk at all, but right. it comes out of that tradition. Here are the bands that listened to that explosion and said, wait a minute, this sounds nothing at all like mm-hmm. the original impetus for punk in the first place these bands have sold out they've moved on to something else entirely they've lost sight of what the initial goal or impetus was let's get back to that and like really drive it home Mm -hmm. so these are also notable because um they are most if not all released on independent Mm -hmm. labels Uh, these bands would basically press and release and fold the sleeves for all their records and send them out themselves. Yeah, yeah. So this is something, you know, they kind of worked outside of that machine that all the other, you yeah. know, that new wave and all the other post Partly, Partly by design, because this is the, the DIY ethic. Like, do mm-hmm. everything by yourself. Don't sell out. Don't be commercial. Right. Make the music yourself. Learn the instruments yourself. Learn mm-hmm. how to sing. Oh, we need a vocalist. Let's pull someone out of the audience to do it, which several right. of these bands yeah. did uh, in a couple of cases. Make the music, produce it, distribute it, publicize it. Mm-hmm. Zines uh, get popular through the hardcore movement. Yeah. So it's partly by design, and partly because I don't think there's a major label that would sign any of these bands in the 1980s. Either, right, yeah, so. in the early 80s, certainly not. I'd yeah. probably be towards the end. Maybe, yes, yeah. But... And some of these bands, what was it, Black Flag, that did sign on to a label for a hot second, and then the label realized what they had just done and dropped them. Yeah, I think which I think was. gave them more cred than they would mm-hmm. have otherwise. Right. And then, yeah, I think uh, a couple of these bands have kind of flirted with it, and then uh, some of them existed long enough to go on and off of different labels. Right. But but yeah, for the most part, none of (laughs) them... Stuck around long enough to become the villain. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. None of them... um, None of them aspired to be like rock stars, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them even didn't even couldn't even fathom it they would see the the stadium singers and say that's not even attainable and kind of couldn't handle it when they did become rock stars Mm -hmm. right like a lot of these bands like dead kennedy's right is going to break up really acrimoniously and a lot of the like later fights have to do with money Mm -hmm. yeah yeah a lot of these have similar fates yeah Uh, but yeah the first one we'll talk about is black flag they uh obviously one of the pioneers in america of the hardcore punk scene Mm -hmm. And one of the trailblazers, almost literally, because they were one of the first bands to go and try and tour the country and find any venue at all that would cater to them. You know, they wouldn't even get paid for half of these shows. They would just, it would be somebody's basement. It would yep, be a yep. rec hall. It would be just anybody they could plug into. Yeah. 
Imagine Black Flag playing at a rec hall. Like, yeah. come down to the community center. <laughs> bring the kids. We're gonna have a. We're gonna have one of these rock music concerts. <laughs> they even even uh, in there. They started in Hermosa Beach, uh, California, like which is kind of outside of L.A. They did um, have uh, you know number of notorious shows there that would get broken up by police for mm. essentially just turning into riots. And they did put out like some radio commercials for some upcoming shows that were like basically like oh. Officer Krupke, basically, he's he's coming to crack down on this one, kids. Better show up before it well, gets Well, that's when you know down. it's a good rock show, right? When the police show up. I remember, like, in high school, we had this, uh, my, my friend was in this band that was Green Day influenced, so, you know, mm-hmm. super hardcore punk. Right. But we would have, uh, they would have basement shows, and, you know, a whole bunch of people would turn out. By a whole bunch, we mean, like, 20, mm-hmm. right? And they'd do a show, and you knew it was a successful show because one of the neighbors would call the police for a noise complaint, and the police would come and break uh-huh. up the show. Everyone was very friendly about it, but that was that was <laughs> how you knew that, A, the show was over, and B, that right. it had been a success because the police came and said, no, no more of this. The, the nice thing, too, at least for these bands, is that uh, even though their shows would get broken up so early— you know, 20 minutes in, they've played their whole catalog, yeah, maybe twice yeah. even. Yeah, but, we're going to uh, get to Minor Threat where you can fit their entire discography <laughs> yeah. on one very short CD. Yeah, yeah, not as long as you might think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, Black Flag formed uh, basically the uh, Greg Ginn, mm-hmm. the for- the basically formative member of the band, would uh, he started playing uh, with his, his friend Keith Morris, uh, who became the first singer ostensibly of the band. It started as a band called Panic uh, in 76, 77, around that time. Uh, ended up changing the name because there was another band named Panic mm-hmm. uh, in, to Black Flag in 1978. Um, and the logo was made by Greg's brother, Ray, who would go by Raymond Pettibon, and would do end up doing art for a lot of the hardcore bands in the yeah. scene. Uh, that was uh, basically the start of their group. And he, uh, before he even started a band, he would basically fix up old uh, stereo equipment and old radios from World War II and sell them uh, by himself mm-hmm. in his own business called Solid State Tuners, which he would then use that same name to become SST Records. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so pretty interesting start. He was only 12 years old when he started selling this fixed-up radio nice. equipment, nice. so he already had some slight business acumen to yeah. then run a label after it, that. You do have to say, it takes a significant amount of money to produce an album. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the, the, the bands that were you know DIYing it and producing right. it and were not going to sell out to the major labels had a decent amount of money in and of themselves to be able to do everything that they did. I appreciate the fact mm-hmm. that this guy like starts out as a 12-year-old entrepreneur yeah. and yeah, that, uh, they know, makes it possible that way. They all did. I mean, they basically all made just enough to do all this, mm-hmm. basically. Most of these bands, Black Flag especially, would live all like in the same house or oh, yeah. in their parents' house or the parents of one of the band members' house. I'm I mean, sure they loved that. Which was, yeah, which was, I'm sure. <laughs> some of the noise complaints, I'm sure, came from inside the house. Yeah, yeah. But, um, or or not? Maybe it's one of those like uh, one of those fun uh, rock moms. Is like, are yeah, you, do you always <laughs> need some more lemonade? No, we're good. One of them, I forget. It might have been. I don't know if it was Black Flag or one of the others, but they had uh, one of them. Like had like a shed in their backyard that was basically became the the practice space. Yeah, and so yeah. All the everything was contained to there at least. Uh, but they would play, starting in 1978, as Black Flag would play all around town, uh, as basically the band to see right mm-hmm. if you wanted to go 
and see a hardcore show, that's who you were trying to see. Yep. Um, Charles Dukowski was the bass player. Des Cadena was on guitar and backup vocals. Uh, Roberto Valverde, also just known as Robo, was the drummer. And then later, it would be it would not until 1981 that Henry Rollins would come and join the band. So mm. basically five years after they started being a band, uh, would Rollins even show up? Yeah, and it's Greg Ginn's band. Like he's the main, mm-hmm. uh, like the guy who formed the band has been with him the whole time. Wrote most of the songs mm-hmm. and like the vast majority of the songs. Henry Rollins is the guy that I think most people associate first and foremost right. with Black Flag. It is funny that he comes along later. And this album that we're that we're talking about today, Damaged, he comes on as that's being produced, right? Basically, uh, almost all these songs were written. Before he joined, mm-hmm. they gave him like a binder of lyrics and said, yeah. here, learn these and yeah. then we'll go from there. He was the fourth singer by that point of the band. Uh, Keith, Keith Morris, who was playing with Ginn uh, originally, ended up leaving in 79 and formed a band Circle Jerks, another uh, notable California punk band. Uh, and then after that, a guy named Ron Reyes took over for a very short amount of time. Des ended up singing in between that and then finally... Uh, they came out to the East Coast to play some shows in D.C. and New York. Rollins uh, grew up in D.C. and ended up hanging out with the band. Drove up to New York later to see him and, and eventually just hung out with them enough that they were like, you know what, we'll yeah. give you a shot. Pull them out of the audience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of, because Rollins, I mean, Rollins was a vocalist for, for a while had, with other bands yeah, before. Yeah, he had his so. own band in D.C. I think yeah. they were called SOA. And then um, he basically worked as a roadie for all yeah. the other DC bands in town and he would go to all the shows and basically I'm saying basically like every basically every sentence has basically yeah. but uh, he was be I've, I've been there <laughs> <laughs> but Rollins would go to all he was in the scene right so he was friends with everybody and then eventually yeah was friends with the right people uh including his his good friend Ian McKay who was uh, who we'll talk about later but yep. they grew up together in DC and so he learned a lot from him as well yeah it's not what you know, it's who you know. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So this album, Damaged. So Damaged would come out in uh, December of 81, just months after Rollins uh, joined the band. Uh, let's take a listen to the first track, Rise yeah, Above. Yeah, Rise Above, yeah. back when on the first uh episode of this show we did sonic youth and mm-hmm. i was like these people are just posers pretending to be angry this is what i was referring to <laughs> like this is what actual emotion is yeah and uh, and they definitely i mean there's 
uh, Sonic Youth was a huge Black Flag oh, fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they were definitely wanted to... They, in fact, they, I mean, they ended up signing to SST later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they... Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, this is Hangers on is what that's called. <laughs> Hangers on. But yeah, they... they uh, they definitely channel their righteous anger into mm-hmm. all the music on this album. Yeah, the thing about, and we'll get to we'll get to Dead Kennedys, I guess, next. Mm-hmm. But the uh, and and Minutemen later. Mm-hmm. But the this album of Black Flags and Rise Above, I think, is kind of is a little bit of an exception to this on this particular album. But all three of those bands have that kind of righteous anger with Dead Kennedys and Minutemen. And with uh, like hardcore punk in general, it's very kind of it's it's political. It's right. left wing. It's anarchist. It's anti kind of Reagan era commercialism, mm-hmm. greed, consumerism, and all that. Uh, so a lot of uh, like Dead Kennedy stuff in Minutemen is kind of outwardly directed. Like I'm angry at right. society. I'm angry at the world. I'm angry at the state of like geopolitics. And they're gonna have a song about Cambodia and mm-hmm. Vietnam and everything. With Black Flag, it's much more internally yeah. directed. I think there's a lot of songs on this album about depression, about apathy, about mm-hmm. substance abuse, and like the experience is much more kind of focused on the internal rather yeah. than the external which i think is cool yeah it's a much more personal uh, yes. anger rather yeah. than like a, yeah they um it's they're singing about the anger of their their own personal lives and things that are influenced them even yeah. when they're like anti-police it's because the police are harassing them right, right? it's not right. about other stories they've read well there's a song and i don't know which one it is on this album it's later on uh i'm not going to be able to to identify but it's Mm -hmm. the one that's basically an intervention Uh like the uh i'm not going to sit here and watch you self-destruct uh i don't know what the what the title of the song is but it might be damaged it might be it might just be damaged Yeah. yeah uh but it's i mean it's basically the literal words from hey our mm-hmm. friends have gathered you here to tell you that we're that we're uh we're your friends and we want you to to change your like it's that just set to hardcore punk music mm-hmm. which is which is fascinating yeah it's a, it's surprisingly like introspective mm-hmm. uh, when you really read the read the lyrics yeah but uh, I think, and also very funny because there's TV parties. Yeah, well, they which, have a they yeah. have a good sense of humor still yeah. on this one too, which they kind of lose later on. Yeah. As, uh you know, Rollins and Ginn kind of butt heads more often than not uh, yeah. as the as the years goes on. Rollins is a much more serious, I think, guy. He got yeah, yeah. he got a lot more serious. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ginn would you know you hear you read uh, interviews with people who've uh, been with them, and he was a very he's kind of a stoic guy. He didn't say much, mm-hmm. and so. Whereas some a lot of other guys, Rollins especially, would be just always wanting to say something. Yeah. Right? So yeah, they always yeah, had yeah. an opinion, and yeah. Gin kind of kept to himself a lot of times, and you didn't know always where you stood with him. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, eventually they were just Rollins being the face of the band, while Gin being kind of the brains of the band, was eventually uh, I think the tension that kind of broke yeah. uh, everything. It, it would be about uh, around 1983 is when Dez and Dukowski would leave the band, and around 86 everybody called it quits. Yeah. There's a lot of tension. How many be uh, do any of these bands stay together for a long period of time? Bad Brains, I guess. Bad Brains yeah. stays. They you know they go off and on, but right, they right. they uh, in, they might even have something new coming out this year. I think you're right. Yeah, but yeah, they they're the longest of the five we're going to talk yep. about. Let's see. I think that that about wraps up Black Flag. Yeah. They they were basically you know I wanted to talk about them first, even though this one kind of came out after the Dead Kennedys album because they were that kind of pioneer band. Yeah, like they're everybody who toured after them were 
calling up the places that they played, right? Or they, <laughs> yeah. they would go to find anybody who knew and said, oh yeah, Black Flag was just here. You guys can play here too. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of, their their music is influential, but their touring and their business model is equally, if not more so, influential. I did describe, was it on mic or was it off mic last week where I described the, the hardcore week as Black Flag and four other ones? I think it might have been on. I, I think it might have been on mic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is unfair to the other four bands, but I mm-hmm. think Black Flag is too hardcore punk with like Talking Heads is to New Wave, right? Like mm-hmm. every when you think about it, you think about that band right. and the other bands That's that the sound first like association it. association yeah. you make, right? Yeah. yeah. But now we'll go uh, a little ways up the coast yes. to San Francisco where the Dead Kennedys... Uh, started playing oh god i love this album this one is yeah. really good yeah and i like all, all, all of these while hardcore all do sound a little different too I yeah think they all yeah. have their own unique sound uh dead kennedy's especially i think there's compared to black flag there's a little bit more intricacy a little more musicianship yes um more melody more melody yeah. certainly uh there's still the same speed same energy but right. uh yeah a little more uh uh, a little more experimental almost. Yeah, yeah. And also and also to an extent more traditional because I've, I've heard uh, hardcore punk described as kind of moving away from the, the traditional kind of verse, chorus, verse, mm-hmm. chorus format for a, a typical rock song. But Dead Kennedys kind of stick with that for a lot of right. their kind of more notable songs on this Yeah, album. there are definitely hooks on this album yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. And I th- and yeah, like we said before, they were much more overtly political. Yes. Uh, than than definitely Black Flag, maybe even of all, of any of them. Well, uh, Jello Biafra ran for ran for president in two thousand. Uh-huh. Uh, Green Party. Uh, he ran for mayor of San Francisco. Mayor of San Francisco, right? Um, which is, I mean, and it's kind of a it's it's a little bit of a, a joke candidacy because right. what did Diane Feinstein was running for mayor of San Francisco at the mm-hmm. time, and she made this big deal of like sweeping up the street. So Jelly Biafra took a vacuum cleaner and yeah, vacuumed up the leaves lawn. on her lawn. <laughs> yeah, and and one yeah his uh, you know some of his campaign promises were like. I'll tear down Pier 39 yep, and no yep. cars will be allowed in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. like, and uh, we'll pay Which I the... think a lot of people would be on board with. I yeah, think, yeah. Uh, probably. But, and yeah. he said, like, uh, we'll pay the homeless to go uh, panhandle in all the rich neighborhoods. Like, we'll bust <laughs> them around to there. And he got called out for being a joke candidacy. And he said, which is exactly the right response, that may well be. But how much less of a joke am I than or how much more of a joke am I really than all of the other candidates? Yeah, exactly. There? Uh, I think he still got something like six thousand votes. So yeah, right. I mean, hey, not bad. This is, this is San Francisco in the nineteen seventies. <laughs> it was a weird. It was a weird time. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, shame he didn't win the the Green Party nomination in two thousand. Because where would we be? It's uh, true. Yeah. I, think Pick- Je- I don't think Jello Biafra would have had the the uh, the national cred that Ralph Nader got to put yeah, him over the uh, the spoiler top. Mm. Yeah. Is- anyway, this album is awesome. <laughs> yeah, but it. it uh, Makes you think about all the alternate universes we could be in. But <laughs> yeah, uh, Dead Kennedys I think also has some of the best uh, band member names of, of any of the groups. Yeah. Today you got East Bay Ray on guitar, Klaus Floride on bass, Jello Biafra of course on vocals, and then Ted, Ted on drums. Yep. I love. I think almost each week now for the last few weeks we've had somebody who's just been one name. Uh yes. We had uh, Budgie. Right. There was uh, Prince. Well, Prince, certainly. Yeah. 
I wonder, I wonder that, if that might be next it. week. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I want. Let's see. Let's play uh, one of their first uh, big hits. I want to go to California Uberalis okay. for Dead Kennedys. Get a little taste of uh, what they're all about. He did have some pretty conservative policies in the 80s. On the other hand, how far to the left do you have to be to attack Jerry Brown as a <laughs> yeah. fascist? It's funny. There's a uh, there's a documentary about uh, kind of the start of the band and the making of this album uh, where you see, some of the other members even were like, uh, you know, I mean, we had Reagan before him and Arnold Schwarzenegger after him. Like, <laughs> honestly, Jerry Brown wasn't the worst guy to, the worst to be guy. governor. but As evidenced by the fact that he's still governor today. <laughs> But yeah, the uh, how old is Jerry? But like he was know. pretty old in the eighties, wasn't he? he I was think like he fifty something. He's been in California politics for decades yeah. and decades. I don't think he's ancient, but I think, but yeah, he's certainly he's up, up there. there. Yeah, uh, but never yeah, did get to be president. Jello, I know, uh, has he? He thought hippies were bullshit, basically, and, right? And that right. all their views were completely surface level, and and so I think he just applied that to Jerry Brown as well. And so, <laughs> I don't think anybody, any politician, really would have made him happy. Uh, Right, right. So I think that's kind of where it comes from. And their name too, Dead Kennedys. They never were. They were not celebrating the death of the Kennedys either. They'll have. They'll have you know. But uh, <laughs> they. It was more uh, of an iconic, uh, like uh, the loss of the American. Another like failure of the American dream. Right. right because even right. this family can't uh, just keeps getting killed over and over again. Yeah. I think my of all of the of all of the tracks off of this week's slate of albums mm-hmm. and i would probably rank this in my top five of all of the weeks that we've done so far and it's not even a big hit like california uber okay. also is the big hit what's the other one that they have off of holiday this? in cambodia yeah holiday in cambodia mm-hmm. chemical warfare is a great mm-hmm. song but let's let's lynch the landlord is my new all-time yeah, favorite that's song. A good one. it's all, so all, great all the songs on this one they they have a, a really really direct message mm-hmm. really good uh hooks on a lot of these yeah. and they're, they like to play with dynamics too. Like they they're not afraid to like start and stop mm-hmm. the songs and change tempo. And, yeah, uh, Chemical Warfare mm-hmm. is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's re- it's really fun to listen to. I think pl- listening to this one was one of the ones that stood out as like wow, like yeah. this is their first full length, yeah. and they're already like at this level. Yeah, it's really yeah. impressive. Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables mm-hmm. is the title, which is an awesome uh, album title yeah. as well. Yeah, great uh, title. And they uh, they formed their own record label, Alternative Tentacles, which mm-hmm. was uh, what they released this on initially. 
Um, that label would eventually go nearly bankrupt uh, after their album Frankenchrist in 1985, another great album title. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to, initially they wanted it to be the cover, but they had to settle for an insert poster of a H.R. Uh, Giger uh, painting uh, known as the Penis Landscape that was about, you know, half dozen or so dicks just going right into uh, a vagina, each one lined up in sort of a collage, almost like a wallpaper. Like uh, you do. As you do. Yeah. And uh, that one did uh, get them into a little hot water with Tipper Gore and the, uh, what was it called? The uh, Parents Music Resource Center. Yeah. Uh, as a somebody brought it home and their parents got upset and called <laughs> up the... Uh, of course, called Tipper Gore mm-hmm. because apparently that's what you did in the 80s. The uh, it, it ended up going to court. It ended up ending in a hung jury, but the legal fees Hey-o. were... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe the best outcome, not monetarily, <laughs> but certainly uh, for the joke, it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that ended up put, putting, uh, you know, we talk about all these bands only having enough to get by, basically, and that yeah. basically nearly bankrupted the uh, the label to the point where it had to get, uh, it got bought out by the one who released the CD, Manifesto, another independent album, or under, another independent label. But yeah. Yeah. So this is this is the danger with with hardcore because you've got this album title Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables which is a great album mm-hmm. title it's like we're we're giving you something fresh and you like you in America are rotting your vegetables mm-hmm. like this is, this is standard uh standard line this is why you get California Uberalis but the idea that everyone in the world is a rotting vegetable is an idea that can go in a whole bunch of really nasty directions. Mm-hmm. And hardcore also has that, you know, in addition to kind of pushing back against new wave, you've also got pushing back against the feminization of punk music. Mm-hmm. And it's very like hardcore. It's also very macho, masculine, uh, kind of a, a very negative view of just like the masses in general. And that has like, that's right on the edge of the fascist cliff in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Right. So you've, you've got this small, but very much their minority of the hardcore movement that does end up going shockingly right wing, uh, in the nineties and two thousands and up until today. And that's the reason for it. Like hardcore is constantly, like very much anti-fascist, but also right on the the straight edge, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, of going over that cliff itself. So it's a really interesting thing to listen to this very political album and see Jello like walking that tightrope, which he does beautifully. Right. Uh, but yeah. it is always worth being aware that they're on that tightrope mm-hmm. and constantly in danger of falling off on either side. Yeah, it's a line you have to toe. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. You know, Henry just... Rollins also does a really good job. With yeah. It. And still, and still to this day, does. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Next up, we've got uh, we go to the other coast. We go back to DC for Bad Brains and their self-titled debut full length. Are these the best musicians of the five Bad Brains? Yes, I would, definitely, I would definitely yeah. say so. I mean, they come out of jazz, right? Initially, they start so. as a jazz fusion band yeah. uh, called uh, Mind Power, mm-hmm. and then they get inspired equally by. Uh, by the punk scene and the reggae scene and form Bad Brains. Uh, the name Bad Brains, they got from a Ramon song. It is actually a uh, a track from 
There was Road to Ruin, 1978, okay. Ramones album. But yeah, they didn't, uh, didn't Mystery Science Theater uh, have bad brains as their like production production team? Did they get it from this band or from the Ramones? Was it bad? I think it's uh, it's something with brain. I don't know if it's bad brain. Is, is it, it bad? I'm, I'm looking this up. <laughs> Keep talking. I'm looking. Yeah. I'm looking this random thing up. But I was listening to Bad Brains and thinking, uh, and thinking, oh, this is a this is a hardcore this is a hardcore punk band that listened to the Clash one day and said, oh, we should be reggae too. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is this is a band that is uh, uh, full on like jazz reggae to begin with, mm-hmm. and it just so happens that. Uh, that the Clash is doing the same thing. Okay, I think I'm wrong about Bad Brains. Best Brains. Best. Yeah, I knew it was Brains something, but you're right, Best yeah. Brains. Okay, well, it could still mind. be a, a nod to it. You never know. Probably uh, not. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably I don't not. imagine. I don't imagine Joel and Mike being huge hardcore <laughs> punk fans. There were. Uh, where were they? Minnesota? Is that Minnes- where they yeah, started? Yeah, Eden Prairie, Minnesota. So this is more likely to be a uh, reference to. Uh, according to Joel Hodgson, the name "Best Brains" came from a phrase I found in a magic catalog. That sounds from some of the best brains <laughs> in the magic business. That's MS3 the Great. Okay, back to hardcore. <laughs> uh, you've got <laughs> HR on vocals, Daryl Jennifer on bass, Earl Hudson on drums, Doctor No on the guitar. Uh, HR and Earl were brothers, mm-hmm. and then uh, Daryl and Doctor No filled out the band when when they were still that jazz fusion uh, yeah. band. And and hardcore punk is a very like to a fault white guy genre. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost no women. Black Flag had a had a female guitarist. Yeah, and there's a, a couple time, yeah. of other there's a couple of other like notable women in hardcore but very very few and it's also like very white to a fault as yeah. well. So worth noting that Bad Brains is a, an African American group out mm-hmm. of DC and like not only not only that, they're also like the best musicians, and this is probably just sort of musically the best album that we're listening yeah, to. Yeah, definitely, definitely the most musically competent of any of the groups, mm-hmm. uh, in not just today, but of the whole scene, mm-hmm. and just as, if not more, influential than a lot of them too. I mean, you have anybody who saw all these shows. I mean, like Henry Rollins himself has been at all these shows, having oh, grown yeah, up in DC, yeah. and seeing them, he got he took a lot of his cues from HR as far as like how to have stage presence and be a front man. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely notable that this group of African-American guys in this very white guy genre completely dominated and were mm-hmm. one of the strongest uh, bands uh, of the whole scene. Yeah, and the one that stays together. And the one that stays together, yeah. yeah. And just from every every uh, every account of them, like just a bunch of like super nice guys. Yeah. Even the, I mean, the music on this album, they talk about like their PMA, positive mental attitude. It's like mm-hmm. they have, they're all about, and obviously the reggae influence too feeds into that one love, just help each other out. They wanted to basically go to a show and have everybody have a good time, right? Yeah. Bring the audience as part of the show. Yeah. And, and it's actually it good... really fascinating just for, for hardcore punk as a genre and how much it kind of feeds into or, or takes its cue from like anger and mm-hmm. mosh pits and like that kind of negative yeah. emotional vibe. Bad Brains is not alone in this. Like you you read up on all of these bands and there's a lot of just sort of generally genuinely nice people mm-hmm. and like the the community, all of the bands are very supportive of each yeah. other and helping each other and oh you're feeling depressed, get back on the get back on the train, we'll help you out. Like mm-hmm. oh you you're you're taking a break 
break because you're going through personal troubles like we'll help you out we want to see you back up on stage like there's a lot of that yeah. in in the hardcore uh in the hardcore scene mm-hmm. like and all of the tension was internally within bands like right. they broke up and like the community in general just really hangs together yeah exactly yeah a lot of tension within the bands but yeah. then yeah if you're part of that scene people are going to bend over backwards to yeah help each other yeah. for the most part and these bad gra- bad brains needed it a lot of times because they would the first time they got invited, uh, they got invited by the Dam to play in England with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sold everything but their instruments to get their plane tickets out there. Ended up not being able to get a work visa to to play <laughs> in there, and caught a plane back the same day, only to find out that their instruments were stolen at JFK before oh, they God. even got on the plane. So they had to then borrow instruments and play enough shows to get back to where they could get mm-hmm. their instruments again, and then eventually got uh, they got managed for a year or so by uh, a dc restaurateur who would who basically bought them new instruments bought them a van and helped them get back on their feet and then that got stolen again Mm. in new york so there was a lot of just bad luck that they were fortunate enough to be in such a welcoming community what was the restaurant it was uh mo and uh, mo and max's something like that okay and i think mo was the one who basically sponsored them yeah, that's disappointing. I almost wanted it to be like Applebee's. <laughs> yeah, no, it was some like <laughs> so, you know, some fa- like highfalutin restaurant that had you know like pictures of all the celebrities who've been yeah, in yeah, the yeah. shop, and, the, and then I just like decided to. Yeah, and the guy like comes out and says, "There's a there's a good documentary about Bad Brains uh-huh. too called A Band from DC, uh, where the guy basically says, you know, I'm like a Frank Sinatra kind of guy, but seeing these guys on stage and hearing their energy, like it's irresistible. Right? Yeah. So he yeah. just had to help them out. That's cool. Yeah. And they, and then they pay it forward, like bands that would open for them who mm. had like busted down equipment that they paid a dollar for at the thrift shop. They, nice. they'd give them their instruments that once they were done, say, Hey, go play another set. And then they'd get back up and oh, that's great. play some more. Yeah. yeah. So let's take a listen to, uh, we'll play band in DC from, uh, bad brains.
You tell you love bad brains because you let that song go on a little bit longer <laughs> know, than well, the other. I two. love that guitar solo. That's it's a so great good. guitar solo, isn't it? The one thing I'll say about bad brains and hardcore punk in general, and I will say the same thing in the '90s about Zach De La Rocha and Rage Against mm-hmm. the Machine. If you want to be a political band and send a political message. Your lyrics should be intelligible to a listener. Uh-huh. Like a lot of these, uh, a lot of these artists and bad brains is, I think the the uh, the prime uh, the prime culprit on this. I cannot tell what they're saying. Like, <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I get the I get the political message of the Dead Kennedys a lot more directly because I can understand what Jello Biafra is mm-hmm. saying most of the time. <laughs> yeah, this one does fortunately have the lyrics printed. That's in the good. Notes. You need that because yeah. it, it was like I was listening to it the other day and. While I was listening, I just pulled it out to follow along. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because it it makes much more sense. Yeah. Yeah. This one, too, I think this recording uh, was done mostly live and then with uh, some slight overdubs. So it is like, you know, they're not going to do takes on each uh, line Mm -hmm. of the the vocal track. Right, right. Um, This one was originally released just on cassette. It was recorded in New York uh, for, uh, what is it called? Reach Out International Records or Roar. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they released, they re-released it on CD in '96. Uh, so this is the first time it was yeah. on. Uh, and it's CD. called the Yellow Tape, right? They the just called it the original, Yellow Tape yeah. originally, yeah, because uh, it was just a, just that picture of the Capitol building with the lightning strike on front yep. said "Bad Brains," and the cassette was yellow. Uh, and that was the only way you could get it until they re-released it. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, is it never on vinyl? I don't think it was ever on vinyl, or if it was, it was well, a- it was also yeah, like yeah, after yeah. the fact. Interesting. But yeah. Their first one, their one that came out after this, um, was their first one that was on like kind of more, uh, okay. And it has, you know, different versions of some of these songs also. So that was kind of a lot of people's introduction. Yeah. Cause there was that, the there was that like hot couple of years when the cassette was actually mm-hmm. the primary method for people listening to music, but this came out in the early eighties, right? Like, yeah. This is 1982. This is back when vinyl was still, was still sort of the standard go-to. Yeah, so. definitely. Especially yeah. on like uh, all the California bands, they yeah, found yeah. record pressing plants that would buy and make them for cheap. Right. So. I guess that is true, and like you want to, you want to press a record that takes money too. And if you're, mm-hmm. if you're to the, if you're in a position where you're selling literally everything in order to play a show, right. then yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, yeah, this one, like I said, I'm pretty sure it was recorded mostly live at this like mm-hmm. rundown New York space that was like just a long hall with some couches that were pulled in off the streets. For the acoustics. For the acoustics, yeah. To absorb absorb some of the sound. And then like a a sound booth that kind of doubled as recording if you wanted it. Oh, man. So that's where this kind of came from. Cool. Yeah, they they found a pretty good following in New York after that song, Band in D.C., they were of the few clubs in the late 70s, early 80s, their shows would get so out of control and then they would also apparently have like huge guest lists that they would always Mm -hmm. put every show to try and get all their friends in. And so eventually the club owners just got sick of it, didn't let them play. So they're yeah. like, fine, we'll go up to New York. Band in D.C. Yeah. yeah. They would come back later, obviously, once they got uh, more following. But It is interesting just how, like, cathartically kind of violent the shows are with the, the music, the mosh pits, the mm-hmm. kind of property damage that takes place and everything else. Just how, like, very philosophical and stoic i mean you mentioned stoic with greg ginn right Mm -hmm. uh a lot of these bands and a lot of these artists are like we'll get to minor threat that sort of launches the straight edge movement bad brains are rastafarians and Mm -hmm. you can get that from a lot of the the tracks off of this album like it's a it's a very uh very kind of internally 
balanced and controlled yeah. philosophy that goes along with these like cathartic explosions mm-hmm. of passion at the show. And I think the two kind of go hand in hand, right? Yeah, definitely. And and one of the things uh, that I've heard as well is that their shows having these um, more dub, like reggae songs mm-hmm. in their set, you know, people were skeptical at first, right? Because they just wanted to come in, thrash around. Yeah. But it actually gave them like time to like come back down yep, and, yep. and regain some some composure and then they'd ramp it right back up so yep. they actually had like a more kind of f- better flow to their set than a lot of these bands that would come and thrash for 20 minutes totally and then everybody see pass that. out like listening to these five albums this one right here isn't necessarily my favorite album that's dead kennedy's but mm-hmm. bad brains is the the band that i can imagine myself going to a show and really enjoying it like this band would put on an awesome show yeah Oh yeah, for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy going like looking up a bunch of these bands. It's pr- it's pretty miraculous how much like archival footage somehow there uh-huh. is of shows from these early '80s. Like, you know, they're obviously not high quality, but the fact that they exist at yeah. all yeah. is kind of a miracle. And yeah, they're going completely insane in all these shows. <laughs> you they uh you can see like HR especially like. You know, there's Henry Rollins himself telling a story of him going to a show and seeing him and being like, this guy is about to be on top of me. And then he just came crashing down <laughs> and is just screaming right in Rollins' face with the microphone. He's like, uh, this is what I have to do. <laughs> yeah. So that's he was a direct inspiration for him right there. Nice. The next band, we're going to go back to California, back for the Minutemen. This is, you know, I talked last week about how we're going to have some of the shortest records uh, this week. Yeah. This is, uh, this might literally be the longest one of the entire series so far. Yeah. Well, it's a double album. It's a double album. This is Double Nickels on the Dime. How many tracks are on this album? 43. 43 on this CD. And some of the the original album that came out, they had to drop some of the tracks yeah. for the CD just to make it fit. Right? Yeah, this is it's funny we have like you know all these collectors edition CDs and stuff with bonus tracks. This yeah. is the only one that's actually shorter <laughs> than the original release. Yeah, they, yeah, they cut a, a handful of songs to make it fit on a CD that would then play in every player. Yeah, this is my favorite album title, Double Nickels on the Dime. I had no idea what it meant uh-huh. until I looked it up. It's like the dime is I ten. Uh, in California, double nickels is five five, which yeah. is the speed limit. It's all about driving fifty five. Exactly. On the they thought the the Sammy Hagar song "Can't Drive Fifty Five was one yep. of the stupidest things I've ever heard. So you yep. know what? We we're gonna because, drive exactly. Oh yeah, 55. drive driving fifty six on the interstate yeah, is a ooh, real a expression rebel. of rebellion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sammy Hagar is a sellout. Yeah, and get that, behind that. And so then the cover is is Mike Watt driving his car flashing the smile in the rearview mirror as he goes. <laughs> if you look at the speedometer, he's going exactly 55 miles nice. an hour. So uh, Minutemen, they uh, come out of uh, San Pedro, California, kind of a working class town, blue collar guys uh, who kind of came onto the punk rock scene wanting to play kind of whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And this album is a good example of how they will just wear their influences on their sleeve and then make, not necessarily what you would expect at a hardcore uh, band, yeah, but not also at all. It, they're like, well, you know what? If you you say you want anarchy, well, guess what? We're going to play whatever we want yep. and then see if you like it. Yeah, this is the slowest album, I think, in terms of tempo. Mm-hmm. It's the least hardcore sounding, but it's still got that vibe. Yeah, and it still has that DIY aesthetic. Yep, yep. They, they recorded this whole album for just about $1,000 altogether and released it. Uh, it was on SST. 
uh, same the the Black Flag label, or at least the same day as one we'll hear next week, which is uh, Husker Du's double album uh, Zen okay. Arcade. So big big day for SST. <laughs> a lot of a lot of records getting pressed uh, around that time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this one is forty three tracks on the CD. A handful were cut from the vinyl. Uh, the handful that were cut were covers, right? Most Mostly, of them were covers. Yeah. I think there was one or two that were original, and then they mm-hmm. also had like some extra car sounds that, uh, sprinkled throughout that they oh, cut. Oh, right. Out. You need those car sounds. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they, it's funny. The way they uh, they kind of put it all together was each band member, uh, D. Boone on vocals and guitar, Mike Watt bass, uh, George Hurley on the drums. They each sequenced a side of it, and then the fourth side was called Chaff. It was all just the leftover stuff. And uh, they took that inspiration from uh, the Pink Floyd album, Umaguma which each band member took aside and, and kind of made their own thing, okay. which is kind of cool. And then they each had a sound, they had sound effects of their each individual cars that they mm-hmm. put on each side also. But yeah, Watt and Boone, they grew up as uh, friends together back in like middle and high school and then ended up meeting George uh, Hurley. He went to their same high school, but they weren't really friends. He was more of like kind of a surfer dude. And right, they, right. They were uh, not. So <laughs> eventually they were like, all right, well, Turns out this guy's actually cool, and he likes punk, and then he and he has a drum set, so perfect fit. Yeah, yeah. The third one might have been the most important part of <laughs> yeah, the component exactly. there. That was probably yeah. step one, and then like, yeah. oh, good. Turns out, oh, he's, a cool he's guy. also all right. Yeah, all right. I like it. <laughs> but uh, they would end up. Uh, they got together, started playing music in '77, uh, and then uh, formed the Minutemen shortly after. Um, they would uh, they would play a bunch of gigs with Black Flag, being you know similar. Uh, a similar area but then eventually after their first tour with them they wanted to kind of separate themselves just because they wanted to keep growing musically and black flag kind of grew in different directions right mm-hmm. they even after their first album they got more kind of sludgy metal sound mm-hmm. and Minutemen wanted to keep doing the Minutemen thing right right and it helped also helped to uh, you know kind of separate them in the uh, eyes of um, the zines and the uh, all the college radio and stuff that was Mm -hmm. kind of the only way for people outside of that to hear it but uh let's take a listen to one of the 43 tracks on here i'm going to play um my heart in the real world which is a 22nd track we're gonna let it go all the way and we might all right none of these songs the only song over three minutes is one of the ones that was cut from the uh, yes for the cd and most of these hover under two Straight into the next <laughs> track, yeah. 
You you actually can like it's not just Hurley. You can get the the kind of surf rock mm-hmm. influence in the in the album itself. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And in the uh, guitar. Yeah, they this whole album has a ton of different sounds, and a I don't think there's a single chorus on any of these songs because there's not time for it. Really. Yeah, I don't think so. There's a couple where there would be time, but mm-hmm. they just didn't do that. Like, right. Corona, which is the which is the hit, because it got featured on on uh, Jackass yeah. as the uh, as the uh, the opening the, the uh, opening song. Yeah, is a two minute song mm-hmm. with lyrics, which you don't hear on Jackass, and it's a great song, but there's no chorus. Right. Like it's just it's telling a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of these were like that. They wanted to kind of break out of that formula of of like the pop song structure, mm-hmm. right? And so that was part of their punk rock aesthetic was like, we're just going to make a song and this is what it is. Yep. And they also, one thing they kind of say tongue in cheek was like, uh, if you make a song that's a minute long and doesn't repeat, then nobody has time to complain about it afterwards. So yeah. We're already on to the next yeah, song. Yeah, we're on to the next one, yeah. <laughs> but, and I mean, how many, you think about sort of mainstream rock music that gets played on commercial radio, a lot of them, you know, they follow the verse, chorus, verse, chorus mm-hmm. format. So there's a verse, there's a chorus, there's a second verse, there's a second chorus, there's a break. Maybe there's a bridge somewhere in there, and then there's a third verse and a third chorus, and you're out, and it's a three-minute song, but it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, three minutes. If you just do verse, chorus, and cut it, you haven't really sacrificed anything. Mm -hmm. The second verse and chorus are just repeating the same literal words and often the same emotion and the same vibe and the same message. So just do the first verse and the chorus and get out and move on to the next one, and you're done. Yeah, exactly. You've you've made your point. You've got your idea out there. Why linger on it? Yeah, get on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. We get it. You're in love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, these guys, they definitely were the, I would say, second most political band of the group today. Yeah. They have a lot of songs about, um, I mean, there's a song called Vietnam, about uh, Vietnam, obviously. Right. Uh, about a lot of working class struggles. Uh, Boone was a big history buff, so he was big into world politics and mm-hmm. history. And then Watt basically did, he read up on it just to keep up with them in conversation. <laughs> so they, they were kind of two uh kind of brainy guys for this like meathead genre yeah as it gets stereotyped as yeah it does get stereotyped as a meathead genre but there are so many really intelligent people within Mm -hmm. it like rollins and biafra and like hr and all these guys from the minutemen like they're all really smart guys yeah and you'd have to be really to to survive in that business right of of having to get out there and just yeah. put everything out on stage and release everything yourself and be a, I mean, to be a, an artist in general is to put yourself out there, right? And so to survive in a scene where it's putting yourself out there with all these, wearing your emotions on your sleeve mm-hmm. and your ideas on your sleeve to, you have to have a certain mental capacity to even handle that, right? Yeah. yeah. And these guys display it. They so were, Watt and Hurley still perform, right? D. Boone, D. Boone died. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. After, in, um, I want, it was uh, 1985. Yeah. Uh, D. Boone died in a car accident. He was uh, going to visit his uh, girlfriend's parents. She was driving the van and mm-hmm. fell asleep at the wheel. And uh, this is this is the one that I was referring to earlier, where it was Mike Watt who was just kind of despondent and didn't want to perform anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was Sonic Youth uh, who yeah. picked him back up and put him back on the train. So they did do something right. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh, <laughs> well, they did many things right, but that was. Uh, one thing they did for, yeah, for their friend, yeah. for the friend Mike, but yeah, unfortunately they would. I mean, this came out in 1984, mm-hmm. so it was just shortly after this, about a year after this, yeah. that, that that happened, and then they uh, they had just also finished up a tour with REM. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 
did an, an interview with Michael Stipe for a zine he was publishing without even knowing who Michael Stipe was. He was just some guy from Athens who nice. wanted to interview him. And then yeah. they got a call later, like, hey, you want to go on tour with us? They're like, oh, sure. sure why <laughs> yeah. not? Yeah. But uh, they that was kind of their closest brush with anything high profile. Okay. Uh, and then, then yeah, obviously it came to an yeah. end in 85. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool story now that, you know, Watt and Hurley still play Miniman songs, but they don't perform as the Miniman. They perform as Watt and Hurley. They put a guitar up on stage for D Boone and they don't play mm. the guitar parts. They just play bass and drums and nice. and sing, and that's it. So they're not they're not the Minutemen. They're just performing Minutemen songs yeah. as a tribute. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I think these these guys definitely. I mean, you listen to this album, it just you get the vibe of just these guys hanging out. Right? Yeah. This is probably yeah, the yeah, most yeah. hangout sounding record since the uh, De La Soul one. Yeah, it's the, it's the same kind of yep, vibe yep. I got from that. But yeah, well, but, it's that surf rock influence, right? <laughs> yeah, the surf rock yeah. influence. You get the sense that they're, I mean, it, like the album cover is him driving on this California interstate. Mm-hmm. Like, you get the sense that these guys hung out on the beach and wrote some of these songs. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and a lot of this hard, I mean, a lot of the hardcore scene is so California-centric. Mm-hmm. But this one captures a different aspect of that California vibe mm-hmm. that I really like. Yeah. Then we go on to, uh, back to D.C., for our last one, this is Minor Threats, complete discography, <laughs> all 45 minutes of it. This is my, of the five, this one I think is my least favorite. This is the one where, this is the one where I feel like the songs kind of all do sound the same. I think, yeah, I, I can see that. I think um, the cool thing about this being their complete discography is from start to finish, you can kind of see, like, the growth a little bit uh-huh. uh, you start off with their eps and then it gets into uh their their only full length which was out of step right which is tracks uh 15 yeah the songs do get a little bit more kind of complex and longer yeah i agree the when i first started listening to it the beginning was kind of like all right this is a little samey mm-hmm. uh it's very black flag reminiscent right well, i mean it's contemporary obviously they're on different sides of, of the country but yeah um ian mckay starts this band uh with Jeff Nelson on drums, Brian Baker on guitar and bass, Lyle Pressler on guitar, and later Steve Hanskin would come in and play bass as well. Uh, they started Mackay and Nelson playing before this in the late 70s as a band called Teen Idols, I-D-L-E-S, which mm-hmm. is a great name, I think. Yeah. Um, and then changed to Minor Threat in 1980. Uh, they So about a year as the Teen Idols, Minor Threat in 1980, they play... R- up until 83 is when eventually they break up again. So pretty short, ten, the shortest tenure, I think, of any of these groups. Yeah. Uh, but still a pretty decent output as far as, you know, obviously their whole discography is on one I mean, you can fit the whole thing on 45 minutes. Yeah. But, yeah. but definitely influential still. Influential, big yeah. time, yeah. Uh, they start Discord Records as their uh, way to release their records, uh, which a bunch of other groups had signed to as well. Um, and their first show as Minor Threat was opening for Bad Brains in dc all right so, pretty good show uh they were 18 at the time mckay and nelson so also some of the youngest of, of the group yeah even yeah. uh rollins is about their same age obviously when then he goes and joins uh black flag but all the other guys were at least like five or six years yeah, older. yeah yeah uh let's take a listen to one of the songs on here from out of step i'm gonna play think again Everybody! 
Minor Threat is the music that I actually think of when I think of hardcore punk. Uh-huh. Listening to these albums, I'm like, oh, this is... I just thought of Black Flag and four other guys, but mm-hmm. it's Minor Threat, I think, is the, the band more than the other four that kind of lays out just sort of like the basic parameters for what hardcore is. Yeah, they definitely have that the fast drums, the mm-hmm. churning guitars, and then... Yeah, as it goes on, they start to play with those elements a little bit, mm-hmm. right? This song's a little more dynamic. It has that bass solo in it. It's real right. fun. But yeah, and, and the, the snarling, like, screaming vocals in it. Yeah. But uh, I, we touched on earlier, too, that um, Minor Threat, uh, or Ian MacKay specifically, started that um, the straight edge movement, mm-hmm. right? Movement, uh, maybe in quotes, but uh, it was a... Basically, MacKay, he didn't want to drink, he didn't want to smoke, and he didn't want to fuck anybody. Right. Or... Basically, he would dial it back a little bit later in interviews. He would say, like, well, I just didn't want those things to control my life. Right. right see so many right. people who are like, all they're doing is wanting to get to the next drink or wanting mm-hmm. to get to the next girl. And so he wanted to go against that. Even And that caused a little bit of tension in their band as well because some of the other guys in the band were like, well, maybe we do want to do that. <laughs> like, you, don't, you don't speak for all of us necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, and it's same with the fans, right? Some fans were like, yeah, we're on board. And other guys were like, mm, maybe not so much. Yeah. But... It was a and that's fine. Right, yeah. it's whatever you everyone, want. Everyone, everyone hangs out. It's a fun community. And they would, uh, they would, in one of their liner notes for the song, uh, either "Out of Step" or "Straight Edge," whichever one kind of lays out that uh, that ethos. He kind of puts in parentheses "I." That was like his concession to the band. Like I don't say it in the song, but I'll put "I" right, and do right. those things in there. So that was, and they got their kind of X on the hand symbol from uh, at a at. Specifically, they got it from the 930 Club in D.C. where they were going to not be allowed to play because it was they were underage. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, look, just put the, you know, label us as underage. And if you catch us, we'll then throw us out. Like, we're not going to do anything anyway. Right. And that kind of actually oh, nice. started a all ages uh, show like type, like type uh, ritual. Yeah. And, th- and that was one thing that they stuck to for their duration of their career was they wanted all their shows to be all ages. They wanted to not limit it by to just twenty one over. Mm-hmm. They wanted their ticket prices to be low because they want people to actually be able to afford right, to come. Right. And it became kind of a sticking point because some, you know, they they might not know the details till they got to a venue sometimes, right? So if they the guys who got there were like, "Look, we want to get paid and play this show," but Ian would kind of be a stick in the mud and say, "No, we this is how we do it." And so yeah, yeah. There was a lot of Ian's uh, kind of personality and that would caused the most uh, turmoil within the band as far as uh, what caused them to ultimately break up. Yeah. But just like, you know, the front man of a lot of these bands was kind of like the personality for all these, right? And mm-hmm. so he was the leader. I mean, he, as is typically the case. Right, with right, anybody, yeah. with any band. But the, uh, there was kind of a common theme of the all these. Like, if they broke up, it was, chances are, because of whatever the, the front man. The front man, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he would eventually go on in the very late 80s to form Fugazi, another influential okay. uh, band that would kind of start the post, they, they label them as post-hardcore, right? So we have post-punk and now we have post-hardcore, right. which kind of, they 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 do sound pretty different. They they would take over a lot of the 90s um, underground DC sound. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, the, the kind of the start of what would become the late 90s, early 2000s emo scene, right? Yeah, yeah. Changing that... Uh, outrage that that they channeled into the thrashing guitars of hardcore into a more looking deeper in my emotions and playing music that sounds more emotional yeah um, yeah so of these five uh which are keepers i think uh i i love the dead kennedys one yes. i think that's 
some of the most fun yeah. to listen to and while having like that wild uh kind of fuck everybody politics of, of yellow <laughs> i love the Minutemen for having that kind of hangout vibe uh-huh. and just every song is completely different from the last one yep um bad brains is great bad brains for just that like top-notch musicianship mm-hmm. and just and the one thing that's funny too in the documentary they mentioned somebody like picking up the single i think it was for pay to come putting it on his record player and being like I must have put this at the wrong speed. Okay, let me let me play it at forty five instead of, or I put it at thirty three instead of forty five. And he's like, yeah. okay, that's well. Now the vocals don't. No, they're just playing it's literally as faster yeah. than I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's is impressive to hear that kind of like. You think yeah, like bad brains, minor threat. Like, oh yeah, you guys think you're fast, mm. and then just play it <laughs> ten times faster than anybody think is even humanly possible. Yeah, and for having that the ability to and the forethought really to structure a show to where people aren't passed out after 20 minutes yeah but so i think uh, probably my favorite of all these five is Minutemen. okay i think that's maybe the one i'd go back to the most okay okay um but i think that the cool thing i mean that i try and do with every episode right is that all of them are a little different mm-hmm. and they all bring something different to the table yep yep uh, next week we will be looking into early alternative so the dawn of the alternative rock era and we'll be looking at uh, some Back of... when alternative meant something. Yeah. <laughs> Did it ever really mean anything? But... <laughs> like in the 90s when we just labeled everything alternative. Yeah. We really were alternative. But yeah, this is that sort of, uh, you know, they some of it's uh, inspired by punk. Some of it's inspired to get away from punk. Some mm-hmm. of it's just uh, inspired by, I don't know, anything really. Yeah, this yeah. is kind of that dawn of the college radio sound, right? A lot of college... Would, promote this kind of stuff the hardcore but then it was really these other alternative bands that kind of took that over and into the 90s and beyond uh so let's see but yeah this week we heard the hardcore punk scene we heard Minutemen, black flag dead kennedys bad brains minor threat minor threat yeah aaron i think i think we may have heard the 80s we heard the 80s i'll see you next week see you next week thanks for listening to andy here's the 80s Let me know what some of your favorite punk albums from the 1980s are by sending me an email at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. That's 80s spelled out E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter at andyhearsit. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.